Please turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter two, reading verses one through eleven. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah, and they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to understand it, uh, to follow it, to have our hearts changed by it, and we pray that your spirit would be present with us this morning to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last year I used Babe Ruth to illustrate one of the dimensions of mutual ministry that God has called us to, but I think that same story Uh, illustrates a kind of loyalty that that boy uh, had for his hero. And you uh, may remember that uh, Babe Ruth was having a real tough time, one of his last games, uh, uh, full games in the the, uh, major league uh, uh, that he was in. He had fumbled the ball. He had thrown it badly. In fact, uh, through his mistakes, uh, from what I understand, Uh, In one inning alone, five of the runs that Cincinnati uh, was able to get were because of his mistakes. And so he was pretty dejected as he was walking to the dugout. And uh, there were the boos and the, the jeers of his fans who had turned against him. And just then, a small boy jumped the fence and with tears of sympathy running down his face, he ran up to Babe Ruth and hugged him around the knees trying to encourage him. And I won't tell you the rest of the story because that illustrates a different truth. But there was a boy who was not fickle in his devotion. Okay, He was loyal to Babe Ruth through thick and through thin, and in this case, especially through uh, the thin times. And I believe that true loyalty is about as rare today as that boy's loyalty was in that stadium. 
Now, of course, there are various kinds of loyalty, degrees of loyalty, but uh, we'll just start even at the most basic uh, level. There have been uh, social scientists who have um, uh, tried to analyze uh, America on various levels, and they have said that loyalty is not really a strong suit of most Americans on any level, really. For example, where it used to be that people tended to be loyal to their local grocery store. Nowadays, grocery stores uh, have a real struggle with uh, maintaining any degree of customer loyalty. It used to be that people would never leave uh, their denomination or their local church. They were loyal to death. Nowadays, it's hard to find uh, any kind of loyalty to, to churches whatsoever. I mean, it's just an amazing, uh, amazing thing. And people have analyzed the same phenomenon in politics and patriotism, marriage, employer-employee relationships. Now, I'll be the first one to say that there have been some benefits to this lack of loyalty in certain areas of life, so it's not all bad. But I believe that Americans, for the most part, have been robbed of a covenant concept that has made a Christian civilization incredibly rich in the first 12 centuries. Um, this is a topic that uh, I found uh, strangely absent from all of the sermon files that you'll find on the, on the web. It's uh, almost non-existent in the illustrations and the books in my library, any of the resources that I normally go to. Uh, but from some of the older writers that I have read from way back, it's obvious to them that this was an incredibly important concept. So I want to look at what does loyalty mean? What are the limits to loyalty? What are the benefits? And how do we get loyalty when we don't have it? Uh, one commentator pointed out that the central theme of this passage that I just read uh, is loyalty. Uh, I didn't notice it uh, when I first read through that, even the word, though the word loyalty is in this passage. Uh, but the more I read and reread this passage, the more I could see that it is definitely at least a central theme, if not the central theme of uh, this passage. And it might help if I define the term. Loyalty is faithfulness to a person, country, group, or cause. It is faithfulness to a person, country, group, or cause. And some translations actually translate the the act of the men of Jabesh-Gilead as loyalty. Uh, For example, the ESV translates it this way. This is verse 5. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Uh, Others translate it as you showed this act of faithfulness. Now the Hebrew word is chesed, which means steadfast loyalty, steadfast faithfulness, steadfast love. And actually, there's a number of nuances in the Hebrew that's really difficult uh, to translate into English. Now, when it does refer to kindness or mercy, it is a kindness that flows from some kind of commitment. Now, the commitment idea, I think, is always central. It's always key. Jenny Westerman said, according to Gluek, chesed does not refer to a spontaneous ultimately unmotivated kindness, but to a mode of behavior that arises from a relationship defined by rights and obligations, husband-wife, parent-child, prince-subjects. When hesed is attributed to God, 
It concerns the realization of the promises inherent in the covenant. Now, because there are some nuances that go beyond this, I'm going to be focusing in on the central nuance of this term of of this faithfulness or this loyalty to a person, country, group, or a cause. And this is a virtue that the Scripture says every Christian needs to put on. Proverbs 19, verse 22 says, That which is desired in a man is loyalty. God wants loyalty. When a husband and a wife are loyal to each other, God is honored. And the Bible speaks positively of many forms of loyalty. For example, the Psalms speak of loyalty to truth. You might think about that. Loyalty to truth. Uh, Acts 2.42 speaks of loyalty to the local fellowship of believers that you are in covenant with. Proverbs 19 speaks of loyalty to parents. Several passages speak of loyalty to a good king or to a good country. And, of course, the pattern for loyalty comes from God himself. He is the ultimately, supremely loyal one that we are imitating. Obviously, uh, the three members of the Trinity, they're loyal to each other. We would expect that. But what is amazing is that God is loyal to those who are in covenant with him those who are sinners, those who have failed him so many times. Psalm 103, verse 17 says, But the chesed, in other words, the loyalty, the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love, however you want to translate that, the chesed of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. That's the ultimate expression of loyalty. God is not fickle. Now, you could say fickle is the opposite of loyalty. Uh, God is not fickle. He is the fountain of loyalty to his covenant people, and therefore he commands us to be loyal to him, 1 Kings 8, verse 61. And he also says in Matthew 6, verse 24, we cannot have mixed loyalties to humans. We need to have God's kind of loyalty in our relationships with each other, especially in our covenant uh, relationships. And so with that as a a background, let's uh, dig into this passage. Uh, One of the first things that distinguished David's godly loyalty from Abner's fake loyalty was that loyalty to God trumped every other loyalty for David, trumped everything else. And it's hinted at in verse 1, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. David's loyalty to God is shown here in seeking God's guidance and following God's guidance, even when it is difficult. Now, if God had said, no, you're going to stay here for another five years, I think David would have submitted to that. Uh, Here, God says, no, you go up to Hebron. Now, he goes up to Hebron. He's not exactly sure what's going to happen in Hebron, but his loyalty is to God, and it's especially found in following God's revelation, which back then was not just in the Scriptures, but was uh, an inspired revelation given uh, to him uh, as well. Second, David's loyalty meant that his loyalty to Saul had its limits. His loyalty to God meant that his loyalty to Saul had its limits. Now, one of the strange things that we've already seen in 1 Samuel was that David was loyal to Saul, and he wanted to continue and remain loyal to Saul. It was Saul who made that impossible. So David's fleeing was really a manifestation of the New Testament principle that we ought to obey God rather than man. So there are limits. 
There's limits on the loyalty that you should give to a country, to a political party, to a church, to a pastor, to any human being. And I think that's a key thing that we can learn from the life of David. But before I leave that point, I want to caution you not to take that point too far. In the 21st century, we tend to focus on the limits to our loyalty. And we say, hey, if my soul messes up, I'm out of here. And your soul might be your wife, it might be your husband, it might be a pastor or a church, it might be a politician. And I would simply remind you that for years before David fled from Saul, he was loyal to Saul despite the fact that Saul had engaged in slander against his name, verbal abuse, broken promises, and a host of other problems. Okay, It was only when Saul made it impossible to stick around and survive that David fled. And even then, David said, no one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand in chapter 24. In chapter 26, he protested he had done absolutely everything in his power in order to be faithful to Saul. Could we say the same about our covenant relationships? Can we honestly say that? Or is our loyalty, quote unquote, constantly in jeopardy of being quickly lost? The third thing that I see about David's faithfulness to God is that it enabled him to be loyal to Israel and to care for Israel despite the fact that Israel had let David down. And it's really our relationship to God that transforms our relationships to others. It's our loyalty to God that helps us to see clearly what kind of loyalty we ought to have to other, uh, to other people. And so loyalty to God is the key to the rest of the chapter. And yet, how many evangelicals are unloyal to God on so many levels? I mean, you start right off the bat in Genesis chapter 1. Gary mentioned it earlier today. Uh, When push comes to shove, am I going to be loyal to the heroes and the evolutionary movement? Or am I going to be loyal to what the Scripture says? You know what trumps everything. This is why Genesis 1 has had so many interpretations that twist it so out of shape you can hardly recognize it. It's because people have a greater loyalty to their evolutionary heroes than they do to the scriptures. And uh, Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot be loyal to one and be loyal to the other when they're coming in opposition. And so loyalty to God's word has to be primary over every other loyalty. A loyalty to God is questioned when times get rough in marriage. You know, there's a lot of people, they don't like that phrase in Hebrews where it says God hates divorce. When Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, he meant it. And no man means that one of the partners in that marriage can't decide to put it asunder. And you can't be encouraging other people to put that marriage asunder. Only God's word can put it asunder. Loyalty to God fizzles when it means tithing. You know, Deuteronomy Uh, indicates if you don't tithe, you are not loyal to God. And you could look at a hundred other areas, you know, uh, loyalty to God ditched in politics, many different areas of life where if you are tempted to put aside a part of God's law word, God's law word says you're not loyal to him. Until we are completely sold out to God, we're going to be finding it difficult to find true loyalty in other relationships. So this is the foundation. Now, David's loyalty starts with God, but it moves on to loyalty with others as well. And point B indicates that it included his family. Uh, Verse 2, 
So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Now the only reason that he even had two wives to go up with him to, to Hebron was because David had, uh, in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, risked his life in order to save them. Now some people would have thought that was absolutely stupid. It was suicidal for 400 men to be taking on tens of thousands of Amalekites, and actually one commentary insists it had to have been over 100,000 that they had attacked, and he's got some of his reasons for that, but suicidal. And yet David was loyal to his family. Now think about the wives as well. Uh, They were loyal uh, to David. If you think about the, the, the tough times that you have being loyal to your husband, think of all that they had to go through as David is fleeing from place to place. They've got no place to stay. They've got no cupboards. They've got no uh, you know, refrigerators and, and stoves and washing machines to, to clean their diapers. Uh, they are really going through a lot. And they don't know if David's even going to come back alive during the 16 months that he is in Ziklag. He's going out on these raids. Am I going to have a husband to come back to? Uh, Think about Abigail. Think of what she had to put up with when he got a second wife. You know, sharing. And yet she remains faithful to her husband, despite the fact that I think that was a little bit of unfaithfulness on David's part, Uh, To his wife, even though it was legal, it was not something uh, that was moral. Uh, Even the fact um, that um, they're here, many commentators point out that it, it hints at the loyalty, the broader clan loyalty, because these wives were related to many people in Judah, and that helped also for David Uh, to be uh, um, uh, uh, building ties within that city. So loyalty is a theme there. The third aspect of loyalty was David and his men. I want you to take a look at verse 3. David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Hebron was high up in the Judean hills. It was far enough away from Philistine controlled areas that he was able to consolidate power without worrying about them interfering. But I just want to look briefly at the, the, the relationship of loyalty between David and his men. If you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 30, their loyalty to David wavered, didn't it? When they lost everything, they turned on David. They were ready to stone David, and yet David remained loyal to them despite their meanness, and that in turn inspired loyalty uh, to him within their lives. It would have been very easy for David to fire these men who had threatened him, uh, threatened to kill him, especially once he got into Israel. But loyalty involves forgiveness as well, and yes, even forgiveness for threatened murder which is really what they had uh, threatened to do to him. He understood the weakness of their flesh. He understood the anguish of their hearts as they had lost everything. Uh, And yet he, he felt these people really are loyal. He stuck with them. They shouldn't have said what they said. He wept over what they said. It hurt. But he forgave them. And uh, didn't justify what they did, but he did forgive them. I think of Gladstone's treatment of his statistician. Uh, Before William Gladstone became the Prime Minister of England, he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. They got weird terms for their government positions. 
But he asked the Treasury for certain statistics that he wanted to use in his speech before the House of Commons uh, to make his budget proposals. And so he sent, sent that down. The statistician brought up his um, statistics, and he didn't double-check them because this guy's had a, a history of being very, very accurate. And so when he presented his speech before the House of Commons, he included these faulty, uh, erroneous figures. When his speech was published in the newspapers, they attacked him. Uh, you know, of how ridiculous these mistakes were. And you can understand that he was mortified, you know, that he had done this public uh, speech and given all of these figures so confidently, so dogmatically, and they were wrong. So he went back to his office. He immediately called the statistician who had made these mistakes to his office. This guy, he came, apparently he said he was just filled with shame, filled with fear. He was certainly was going to lose his job. But Gladstone said... I know how much you must be disturbed over what has happened, and I have sent for you to put you at ease. For a long time, you have been engaged in handling the intricacies of the national accounts, and this is the first mistake that you have made. I want to congratulate you and express to you my keen appreciation. (laughs) You can bet this guy appreciated Gladstone and uh, didn't want to ever make that mistake again. Uh, In fact, it, it forged a loyalty between them. Over and over, David showed that kind of a forgiving heart, and it made his men want to lay down their lives for him. Forgiveness, it's a key to mutual loyalty. So despite the fact that his men had made a huge mistake, a sin, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, he brought them all with him to Hebron, every one of them. And this illustrates an important principle in business that if you want to have loyalty downwards uh, or upwards, you've got to have loyalty downwards. Verse 4 illustrates the mutual pledge of loyalty that a king and a country make to each other. It's not one way. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, that anointing was a symbol of the covenant that the king would make with the people. And if you read the law, you'll see how it was made. What happened is that the king would pledge loyalty to God and to the people, and the people would pledge loyalty to God and to the king. And this anointing uh, was the symbol uh, of that. And because First Chronicles gives inspired commentary on this, we happen to know this was a sincere pledge of loyalty. First uh, Chronicles 12, verse 38 says, All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king. So that interprets this as a sincere pledge of loyalty. Now that's the first hint of the passage that these guys could have a sincere loyalty to Saul, and then later on have a sincere loyalty to David. And we'll, we'll look at that in a little bit and see how even when countries are messed up, there can be a very legitimate loyalty. But I just want to comment on the issue of loyalty to a country. Americans are so used to criticizing their government that the thought of people being loyal to the government is often missed. Okay, we expect the government and all who are in office to be loyal to God, loyal to the Constitution, loyal to us, but we don't often reciprocate. And I think we need to think about this whole issue of loyalty to country a little bit more. Some of us may even need to ask God's forgiveness uh, for expecting loyalty to be totally a one-way street. 
We have expected public officials to serve us, but what have we done to encourage and serve public officials? Loyalty to country. I think it's a kind of loyalty that's become rare in America. But then verses 4 through 7, we've got expanding invitations to loyalty. So loyalty spreads. It grows. Um, The way that these men of Jabesh are, are, are loyal inspired other people to want to have the same kind of loyalty as well. And eventually all Israel would pledge loyalty to God and David And David would pledge loyalty to God and to the people. But I want you to look at the small beginnings. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. Now this phrase shows that the men of Judah did not consider loyalty to David to be in any way contradictory to a previous loyalty to Saul. I mean, they had been loyal to Saul previously. David had been loyal to Saul. We're going to be seeing in a moment, David did not consider it contradictory either. In fact, the willingness of those men of Jabesh to be loyal to Saul even after Saul had died showed to David, these guys are not mercenary. They're not in this just for what they can get out of it. They truly loved Saul. They truly were loyal to him. Saul had rescued these guys from having their right eyes gouged out by the Ammonites and being in perpetual slavery, and they felt like they owed Saul something. They owed him. Even these men could understand that, but I think this was a providential test of David. Would David look at this loyalty to Saul... From God's perspective, well, the text says, absolutely, yes, he did. And these men of Jabesh-Gilead, I think they're a wonderful model of loyalty to us. They were not fickle in their loyalty to the king, despite the fact that this king had done a number uh, of bad things. In effect, these men of Judah were saying, hey, David, there's some men way up north that we think you ought to know about. These are valiant men. These are loyal men. These are the kind of men you're going to want to have on your side. Now, we're such cynics, we question this, okay? How can a Democrat who has changed parties and become a Republican possibly be loyal? There must be something wrong with him. He stayed in the Democratic Party uh, for so long, right? But reasons for loyalty can be incredibly complex. There have been some evangelicals, for example who have stayed in the liberal denomination, the PCUSA, up until last year, and then they've left. We we shake our heads and we wonder, how could they have endured so long? How could they be loyal to that denomination so long? They were probably thinking, we're going to try to change things uh, from within. There are some people who, no, the last straw happened 10 years ago. And there are others, like the beginning churches in the PCA, who left the PCUSA in the early 70s. And there were some who left even before that. They just couldn't stomach it anymore. Much like some of the men who came and defected to David, actually they had defected before David defected. They left the system before David did. And I bring this up so that we don't get judgmental. People with loyal hearts don't want to break that loyalty unless God has clearly called them to do so. I think this is really an important principle. It's a complex process of knowing when such a break is authorized by God. So keep in mind, David continued to work for Saul long after Saul was disqualified as a king. What's with that? 
Well, what's with that is that people many times hope that they can achieve change uh, from within the system. Here's how the Declaration of Independence words it. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. By the way, I'd say the same for churches. I think the same principle applies there. But he says, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. That's wise. But the point is, everybody has a different breaking point. Jonathan, even though he perfectly agreed with David's need to flee, did not feel like it was time for him to leave yet. He just didn't feel like he could break away. And a good case study on this is the loyalists at the time of the uh, first American war for independence. They felt like they needed to stay loyal to the king of England. Now, various people switched from being loyalists to being revolutionaries over time, and there were upwards of 20% of the population who just did not feel like they could be involved in this uh, conflict. Many of them fled to Canada. Some of them fled to, uh, back to Britain. And some of them weren't even loyalists. They just felt, this is premature. This is precipitous. Uh, the movie The Patriot, I think, does a marvelous job of showing this ambivalence Do we fight? Do we not fight? You know, it it, it can be a complex thing. And yet, even though the hero on that movie joined slowly and joined reluctantly, he was still a hero, wasn't he? And these men of Jabesh were indeed treated as heroes by God and by David. Verse 5, so David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, you are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness and other translations have, you have shown this loyalty to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. You are blessed of the Lord. Now, could you say that to a Daniel, a Shadrach, a Meshach, and an Abednego who was serving very faithfully, very well, a tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar? Scripture does. Could you say, you are blessed of the Lord to a Roman centurion who served the Roman government faithfully, even though Roman government was an imperialistic government. Jesus did. And I bring this up to encourage you to be gracious to those who have differences from us on political alliances because life is so much more complex than theory, okay? We know what a Daniel had to do when loyalty to God uh, came into conflict with loyalty to Darius, He had to obey God rather than men. We know what David would do. We know that Jonathan himself had times when loyalty to God made him have to go against his father's desires, his father Saul. And yet all of them gave loyalty to less than ideal figures. And in this, I think they challenge our tendency to be perfectionistic. At least, you know, we have perfectionistic attitudes toward others, toward politicians. We rarely apply the same standards to ourselves, do we? Well, let me go out on a limb here to make this point and say that there were people, and you may be shocked at my even saying this, but to say that there were people who tried to maintain integrity in Hitler's army even though their loyalty made it incredibly 
awkward at times. It put them in awkward positions. Now, knowing what we do from hindsight, we may say, how could any good person possibly have served in Hitler's army? But there were good people in that army. There are many good people in that army. We mentioned uh, General Rommel um, uh, last week. And some of them had to be incredibly creative to maintain a supreme loyalty to God. SS uh, Grubenfuhrer, uh, Hans Wolf, was one such man. He got orders on one wintry day in 1941 uh, to uh, inspect and search the house of his pastor. Uh, his pastor, pastor's name was Martin Kirschlager, and Kirschlager was a very conservative a Lutheran pastor who was connected with the Confessing Church that Hitler was asked after. And Hitler was targeting the Confessing Church because they preached the whole counsel of God, like we try to do, but they also had some subversive alliances there. And he didn't want to you know, be the, the reason for his pastor going to his death. So two or three hours before they went to search the house, he went to his pastor and he said, uh, by the way, pastor, I want you to know that in about two to three hours, uh, I and some soldiers are going to come and search your house for papers that I know for sure are going to send you and your family to the concentration camps. And uh, so he was basically giving him a heads up. It gave him two or three hours to destroy the, uh, the, the paperwork that would uh, yeah, implicate him. And apparently Wolf did this with some others uh, as well. And so loyalty can be a tricky thing. And it is only as our loyalty to God is supreme that we can navigate the treacherous waters of loyalty to men and to causes. Now, I tend to side with the men who defected to David way early. I'm just too much of a black and white man. I just can't stand the, the tensions that go on with those who are trying to reform things from within. But I can still respect the holdouts who hoped that they could make a difference within the system. And there were men. There were men who uh, did that, never compromised their faith or their ethics. Men like Jonathan. Loyalty was such a valuable possession to David that he preferred to honor loyalty rather than to criticize it, even if it was loyalty to Saul. Because of the chesed that they had shown Saul in verse 5, verse 6 says, And now may the Lord show chesed and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. So David was prepared to be loyal to them. Why? Because they had been loyal to Saul. He saw it as an asset. Verse 7, Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, Jabesh Gilead was now going to be a part of David's kingdom, and it put them into an awkward position because they're way north. They're way far away from David's armies. And they're surrounded by the armies of the Philistines and the armies of Abner. It's like they're a little island in a sea of the enemy. But it was a pretty powerful uh, city. And this was an incredibly uh, uh, wonderful strategic move on David's part uh, because... Um, He's got, he's got positions there. It's almost like a pincer you know, movement around, around Abner's forces. And over time, more and more people from Abner's armies defected to, uh, to uh, David. It became almost like the army of God. They, 
uh, they, they say in First Chronicles. So not only did Judah secede lawfully from Israel, but Jabesh-Gilead did. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole subject of secession, even though I'm sure some of you would like me to do that, but we're not going to get into that subject. But it is a lawful option for states, and God himself said so in First Kings chapter 12. So we've looked at all of the complicated dimensions that godly loyalty can take, and we've looked at its limits. Now, next point. In contrast to the godly loyalty that we see in David and in Judah and in Jabesh-Gilead, Abner's loyalty was hollow. It was counterfeit. It was fake. The illegitimacy of the loyalty is only hinted at here, and the first hint is the word but at the beginning of verse 8. Now, even though I think it is hinted at very, very clearly in this passage, I want you to turn with me over to chapter 3 and verses 6 through 12, and this passage just clearly lays it out. It's just a slam dunk that uh, his uh, loyalty was hypocritical. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let's uh, begin reading at verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of David. Now, this shows that Abner was using Ishbosheth only until he could consolidate the power and the rule himself. Verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love, and that's the word chesed or loyalty, to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends. And have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. Now this is seven years later. In verse 12, Abner's offering to join David, to hand his kingdom over to him, and to be loyal to him. But right off the bat, we see a number of reasons why this is absolutely hypocritical. First of all, Abner clearly has known all along that God had said that David was the rightful heir to the throne after Saul, okay? Uh, he was there when Jonathan publicly stated that he wanted David to be the heir. Abner knew the truth. He saw all of the debates that were going on. Unlike David, he was not seeking God's will, and even though he knew God's will, he was in violation of God's will, not to speak of his violation, of, a moral violation of uh, uh, Rizpah. Second, he doesn't have the least bit of respect for David or for Judah. When he says, am I a dog's head of Judah, he was using dog's head and Judah both as derogatory terms. He didn't think much uh, of them. This makes, again, his pretended offer of uh, loyalty to David a false one. Third, Abner could see the writing on the wall. He's not making headway. In fact, he's losing ground steadily to David, and he's realizing, okay, if I'm going to stay in power, I've got to do something. 
And uh, this is as good a time to do it as any. If I'm going to maintain power, I've got to make a covenant with David. But again, it's pretending loyalty. He's forced to it. And then the whole passage shows he was using and manipulating Ishbosheth, not being loyal to him. Now, what's clear here, I think, is hinted at in our passage as well. If you turn back to chapter 2, uh, let's read verses 8 through 10. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. Now, the name places show the territory that Abner was able to control, and the phrase over all Israel uh, is just a reference to the fact that Israel from the other tribes that the Philistines had taken over fled to this area, these areas that he mentions. So he's over all Israel, but the territories are pretty small. Uh, and if you look at your map, uh, let me just show it for you. Uh, <clears throat> the first map has uh, the, the tribal boundaries. Well, the only parts that he has are Gad, that's where Gilead was, Benjamin, Ephraim, and one little city up in Issachar. All of the rest of Israel is controlled by either the Philistines or down south Judah is controlled by, by David. So it makes Abner's refusal to join David uh, earlier all the more foolish. Anyway, on to our subject matter. Even though Abner claims to be loyal to Ishbosheth, in this passage I just read, who's calling the shots? Who's ruling? I mean, it's clearly Abner. And the verbs, I think, make that very clear. Ishbosheth didn't make Abner commander. He didn't move the headquarters. The text says Abner took Ishbosheth. Abner designated the new capital. Abner brought him. Abner made him king. This is unilateral. Now, why would he even bother with Ishbosheth that this was, you know, him wanting to be in charge? Well, it's because if he did this right off the bat, people might have suspected something. He might have been in trouble uh, with Israel. So Abner has to pretend to be serving Ishbosheth, but all along he's manipulating Ishbosheth behind the scenes. He's faking loyalty. A Japanese proverb says, great treachery looks like loyalty. Great treachery looks like loyalty. And my suspicions are that there are Abners behind the scenes in the Bilderbergers and the Trilateral Commission who are pretty much running the show in Washington, D.C. And even though the politicians may themselves be manipulated, they're manipulating the people as well. While they call themselves servants of the people, what are they doing? They're raping America. They are pillaging the people. They are running roughshod over the Constitution. And so what I'm doing, I'm looking for states who are willing to take their roles as protectors seriously, who will act like David. And I praise the Lord for the 10 states that are taking a hardline stance against Obamacare. I think there are a lot of citizens who would be very, very glad to support those states. So what we need is we need interposition. And David is engaging in interposition over Judah. That's a lawful forum. And Jabesh Gilead is engaging in interposition as well. Now, the last point is simply pulling together some loose historical threads. Let me just read that point for you. It says, the, the pretense 
of letting Ishbosheth rule was only kept up for two years, verse 10. For the first five and a half years, it was really Abner who ruled, verse 10 with verses 6 through 11. Excuse me, verse 11 with verses 6, uh, six through 11. Okay, let me read uh, verses 10 and 11. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, there are commentators who are puzzled. In fact, all the commentaries I've got in my shelf, they're puzzled over how to reconcile the fact that Ishbosheth is reigning two years, David's reigning seven and a half years, and yet it's clear in chapter 3, verse 12, that Abner is turning Ishbosheth's kingdom over to David at the end of those seven and a half years. I mean, the two years of Ishbosheth don't seem to be able to reconcile with the seven and a half years uh, of David. Uh, one commentator uh, tried to reconcile it by saying, well, maybe Abner and Ishbosheth didn't do anything for the first five years. That's absolutely ludicrous. That's impossible. I mean, there can't be just a gap like that, or David would have been able to take over the whole. Uh, and so I think, and one person said it, the scripture uh, here maybe is an error, or maybe there's a transcriptional error. Again, that's ridiculous. If you're going to be loyal to God, loyal to the scriptures, you have to believe that they are truth, that they're going to reconcile. And I think that there is a, a pretty easy uh, solution to this. The easiest way to reconcile this is to say that Abner let Ishbosheth rule for two years while he sought to consolidate power behind the scenes. And once he had consolidated his power, Abner was really the one who ruled for five years and made all the decisions. And that's totally consistent with chapter 3 and verse 6, which speaks of Abner strengthening his hold on what? On the house of Saul. It took a while. So there is a period where he's trying to gain control of the house of Saul, and then there's a period where he has total control of the house of Saul. First two years, he's trying to gain that control, and then by the end, he's so powerful, he can just outright say to Ishbosheth, by the way, you're just a puppet king here. If you want to stay alive, keep your mouth shut, and I'm the one who's calling all of the shots. I think that 100% reconciles all of the facts uh, that, are, that are in in the passage. He was a weak puppet king. And uh, the passage we read earlier actually shows that too. In the later years, Abner is so bold. I mean, he's even sleeping with the concubines, which in a pagan world uh, was a declaration, I'm really the king. That's in effect uh, what the declaration was. Now, what was weird is that even on that day, Abner still claims to have shown chesed to have shown loyalty to Ishbosheth when in, in, in reality uh, he was using him. As far as I'm concerned, he was in effect saying that Ishbosheth should consider himself lucky that he's a king in name. You know, forget about actually ruling. And so I think uh, it fits all the evidence. Now, I began the sermon by saying that until we are sold out to God, we will have a difficult time being loyal and balanced in our loyalty in our other relationships. In his wonderful book, Abandoned to Christ, uh, Ellie Maxwell tells the World War II story of Ruth Mitchell. 
Uh, she was the sister of General uh, Billy Mitchell. She's the first woman to ever have become a member of the revolutionary death-defying Kamataji. Uh, the role of the Kamataji was to harass Hitler's forces uh, whenever they would penetrate or come into the frontiers of the Yugoslav, uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, Ruth Mitchell was inspired by these men. When she joined, she was given a vial of poison because no Kamataji had ever been captured. And it's a centuries-old organization, never been captured alive. And she watched uh, Pekanek, the leader, cross her name off the list of those who had applied for membership. And then Pekanek said this, We just cross your name off, my girl, because we consider you dead when you become one of us. We value our lives as nothing. Now that is a supreme loyalty to a cause. And Jesus said we must have that kind of commitment to him. In Luke 14, 27, Jesus said, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There are a lot of Christians who are fake Christians, and the reason I can say they are fake Christians is because they lack loyalty. And because Jesus said, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We must take up our cross daily and be prepared that day to die on that cross. That's what Jesus was in effect saying. When you became a Christian, Jesus crossed your name off the roster of volunteers in his army. And he said, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Loyalty to God can be summed up in the words of Pekanek. We just cross your name off, my girl, because we consider you dead when you become one of us. We value our lives as nothing. So here's the question. How do we gain that kind of loyalty? I believe we do it by daily consecrating ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and asking him to help us to do the impossible. I have to do this daily. In fact, very literally, I, I get down on the floor, I put my head on the carpet, I tell the Lord, I said, Lord, please put your foot on my neck because I want to be your slave today. I want to be faithful to you, and I declare you to be my sovereign Lord. Please give me the strength so that in thought, word, and deed, I will be loyal to you. I have to do that every day because I know my heart is going to wander. I'm not going to have the kind of loyalty to God that I need to have. We can only be faithful because God is faithful. God is the loyal God. He is the faithful God. And he expects us to imitate his faithfulness, but he does not want us to do it in our own strength. It's only by his grace. Father God, I pray that you would make us to be loyal to you to be able to have our names stricken off the, the roster, to be prepared to lay down our lives for you and to lay down our discomforts and our inconveniences for you. Father, we want to be loyal, but we recognize how easy it is for our hearts uh, to wander and how weak and feeble our loyalty really is. Father, I pray by your spirit, you would draw our spirits to your spirit and make us so loyal to you that our loyalties in marriage, our loyalties in church, our loyalties in all of the other departments of life would be transformed and would be in submission to what your word says they ought to be. 
We love you, but we want to keep growing in that love. And we thank you for your chesed love to us. Great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.